Our scripture uh, reading this morning is taken from uh, Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to end up reading uh, the whole chapter, though we're probably going to focus more on the the second half of it. Uh, But you're going to follow along in your Bibles or or on the screens uh, or in your bulletin. Uh, Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts uh, this morning. Uh, Help us to understand your word, um, not just in a way that uh, increases our intellect, Lord, but changes everything about us, the way we think, Lord, the way we act, uh, the desires that uh, aim our hearts in different directions. We pray that your spirit would work on our hearts and lives Uh, through the instrument of your powerful word here this morning. Uh, We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This week I was uh, thinking back on when I was a kid. And uh, when I was a kid, we would, of course, have recess, which is my favorite subject in school, like it is for most. And uh, on that playground, there would, uh, on occasion, be, from time to time, uh, a disagreement or an argument, or from time to time we would get together and hatch out some sort of scheme, uh, something that we were getting intent on doing. 
And uh, in those moments, we'd, we'd hatch a plan or there would be two kind of disagreeing parties on the playground and someone would give their word about something or their promise that they would do something. And uh, this transaction would often be uh, occasioned by uh, the sacred bond of one's word, of course, but it was signified also uh, by a sacred practice uh, that we called the pinky swear. Uh, Maybe you've heard of this before. Now, on the playground, to break the pinky swear, unless your fingers were crossed or your toes were crossed, that was the stipulation, but to break the pinky swear would be to violate the whole governing structure of the playground world. Uh, To do that would be to commit some sort of social suicide because to break the pinky swear meant that you could no longer be trusted. Now, perhaps we've gotten even more cynical uh, about trusting people the older we become in our lives. Because let's face it, trusting people uh, can be very difficult at times, especially if that person is a stranger. So what we do culturally is we put together all sorts of safeguards that help us in this endeavor of trusting other people. Uh, I don't know if you've purchased a car any uh, time recently, but when you go and purchase a car, uh, it often takes about three hours of sitting there and you make all sorts of promises. You promise that you will pay uh, a certain amount of money um, over sometimes a very long time, uh, and they promise to give you a car as a result of it. And there are all sorts of punishments that come if you break that promise. But nothing is like purchasing a home. Because if you've ever purchased a home, you know that that home settlement, at least the last ones I've been to, is a guaranteed hand cramp. Because you sit there for hours signing document after document. And when you do that, you make promises, sometimes mortgages lasting for over 30 years. And the seller promises, if you give them that money, they're going to give you their home and the land that was on it. So everybody is making promises and those promises are solidified in in contracts that are filled with all sorts of signatures. See, all of these things are agreements that are based on promises and trust that the other party in which we are engaging with will come through on their promises. The reality is for as long as there's been culture, For as long as there's been civilizations, there have been these sorts of promises and the need for each one of us to trust one another. Now, in biblical times, it was no different. But in biblical times, these promises were solidified in what they called covenants. And when we think about covenants in the Bible time, the only thing that might be as close to what we have in our culture is, is the covenant of marriage. Think back to your own marriage or, or the time or marriage you've been to recently, and you'll, you'll remember husbands and wives standing in front of an altar before God and witnesses promising that they will love and cherish their spouse for as long as they will live. They promise things like in sickness and in poverty, those things will not break this sacred covenant that they are making. And, and one of the things that we talk about in a marriage is that God himself, that's why we do it on an altar in a church often, that, that God himself is the one who is witnessing this covenant. 
It's a covenant that establishes intimate trust and and establishes the strong promise of a couple that is intended to last for the entirety of their lives. Well, in our passage this morning, we, we witness a covenant. And in our passage, God comes to Abraham and makes a covenant, makes a solemn promise to him. And when we look at this covenant, we're reminded once again, as we have been throughout the whole Abraham story, of the remarkable character of God. The fact that he even comes and establishes his promises is remarkable. But also that the very perfect character of God stands behind him, that he is fully faithful and he is trustworthy in his promises. So what I'd like to do just really quickly is to look at the pieces of what's happening here and to see what it teaches us about the nature of faith in God. First thing to look at really is in verses 7 to 8. It tells us just a little bit about the occasion in which God came and made this covenant. If you've been with us uh, the past couple weeks, you'll know that, that we've been looking at the ups and downs of faith. And we've used this man Abraham in the book of Genesis as our case study because what his story reminds us is that faith is central to this thing uh, called a relationship with God. But, but what it's also reminded us is that it's not easy, that often faith is a battle, that it's full of ups and downs and, and moments of certainty and, and moments of doubt. It can be all over the place all at once. But the story really begins in Genesis 12, where where God comes to Abraham making all sorts of promises to him. He comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you offspring, a family that is numbered with the stars of the sky. He tells Abraham that he's also going to give him a land that is his very own for, for his people and for his offspring. And he promises, thirdly, that his hand of blessing will be on Abraham and his descendants for all of time. But as we get later on in the book of Genesis, we get to Genesis 15, and, and time has passed. And time, for, at least for Abraham, has delayed the fulfillment of of the promises of God, at least from Abraham's perspective. And so in the beginning of of Genesis chapter 15, Abraham confronts God about the promise of offspring that thus far has remained unfulfilled. Abraham says, God, I still remain childless. After all these years, will you ever come through on the promises that you made to me. So Abraham uh, is taken out by God on a starry evening, and he's asked to look up at the stars, and God confirms to him that his children, his offspring, will number the stars of the sky. And what the passage tells us is that immediately Abraham's faith was confirmed. But Abraham wisely didn't quit while he was ahead when it came to questioning God. If God is going to confirm that promise, well, why doesn't he confirm all the other promises that he made to me as well? And that's why in verse 7 it says this, And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Verse 8, But Abraham said, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it. 
See, what Abraham is doing here is he's, he's, he's showing God the paperwork. He's lifting up the paperwork and he's asking God for specifics. You see, God promised him a great land, but that promise hadn't been realized of yet. And, and Abraham just wanted a little bit of uh, the inside track on all the details of how this promise would be fulfilled. How is it going to happen? In effect, Abraham is saying, God, I believe, but I also want to know. I want to know the specifics. I want to know the details of it all. And if you've tried this journey of faith at all or had any experience with it whatsoever, then you've been there before. You know what Abraham is feeling at this moment. Because this journey of faith that we are on in a relationship with God never has as many specifics and details as we would like it to have. We often wonder, what is God up to in our lives? You see, if God is is sovereign and, and nothing escapes his attention and control, then wouldn't it be nice if he let us in on a little bit of that insider information when it came to our lives. Wouldn't it be nice to know how one particular relationship crisis or some work crisis is going to get resolved down the road? Or how will our kids turn out? Or will we ever find a spouse to love us or a job that will truly satisfy us? You see, we ask God all all these questions because fundamentally we don't like to feel like we are out of control in our lives. We'd rather not really have to trust God with the deepest part of our lives. And so we're like Abraham. We pray to God and we ask for a little bit more information. The truth or the reality, though, is that God rarely provides it. And he certainly didn't with Abraham in this passage. But what God did do in response is equally, if not more, remarkable. Because what we see is that God makes a binding covenant with Abraham. We read the particulars of the covenant in verses 8 to 11. And and the substance of it, let's be honest, feels a little bit strange to us. Probably because it's so incredibly bloody if you really think about it. But all of this was, though it seems very bizarre to us, all of this was common practice in Abraham's day. You see, what God does is he comes to Abraham and he says, take a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, and a three-year-old ram. And he's also to take a a turtle dove and a pigeon. And and what Abraham does is he divides, he, he cuts these animals in half And then he sets these animals apart from one another, creating a path that one is able to walk through. It was an incredibly bloody act, if you really think and reflect on it for a little bit. And it would create this this bloody path in between these animals. Now, in the ancient world, like I said, this was a practice that was common between two parties that were coming to an agreement with one another. And every part of it was significant and symbolic because, because the animals themselves were symbols 
And what would happen is that both parties would walk between the halves of these animals on that bloody path. And that was significant. It symbolized something. And what it symbolized was that if the promise that they were making was broken, then the covenant breaker could be divided just as these animals were. Imagine that for a minute. If they broke the covenant that they were entering into, then they would forfeit their lives. You see, there were no lawyers writing up contracts. There were no uh, arbiters or, or mediators in the ancient world. So they did these things called covenants. And to break this covenant meant that you forfeited your life. These were pretty serious terms whenever anyone engaged in them. But what was common, at least for Abraham, was about to become unspeakably remarkable in Abraham's life. Because really the last thing that we see is the power of this covenant, not just for Abraham, but for us as well. And you can see that in verses 12 to 18. Those verses tell about how God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. It says this in verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, great and dreadful darkness fell upon him. And then in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land. So our passage tells us that Abraham is is shrouded in darkness. He's shrouded in sleep. And as he's doing this, he witnesses a smoking fire pot and a torch, a flaming torch, that passes between these divided animals, that passes on this bloody path. And theologians have have called this a a theophany, and what that means is that that this was a very physical and visible representation of the very presence and power of God. In a sense, what God was doing is he was binding himself to his promises, essentially saying, Abraham, if I don't fulfill this promise— then may I, God, be divided just as these animals were divided. What's interesting is that Abraham himself isn't forced to walk through the animals because God and God himself does this alone. And in doing so, he affirms to Abram that he will keep his promises. And to signify his faithfulness to keep his promises, he will bind himself in covenant to Abraham. It is one-sided. It is God-initiated. And when God does this, he puts himself on the hook, as it were. God himself pledges to the death. He is the giver, and Abraham alone has to receive. God promises that he will come through on his promises. Now, this is not the the first time that God made a covenant, and it won't be the last if you read the scriptures. 
the first covenant that we read about in the scriptures is called the covenant of works. That's when God came to Adam and Eve, but we know very quickly our first parents, Adam and Eve, they broke the covenant that was made between them and God. Because our, our first parents were covenant breakers, so we, as their children, by nature, are covenant breakers as well. Now, because of this, every covenant that came after Adam and Eve would be a gracious covenant. God would, in his grace and mercy, make promises to people who by nature are sinful and are covenant breakers and are prone to, to, to break promises. And he made these covenants of grace, like this one, to Noah. We read about it in Moses. We meet about another covenant uh, to David later in the Old Testament. But it really reaches its pinnacle in the book of Jeremiah where it talks about a new covenant. God says through the prophet of Jeremiah, I'm going to come and make a new covenant, a final covenant, the climax of all covenants. And what the gospel tells us is that that covenant... The climax of the covenant of God's grace and his activity in history came in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, God, the ultimate covenant keeper, came to those who were sinful, to those who were covenant breakers. But instead of coming in judgment, he came to take the punishment. Because what the Gospels tell us is this. That there was another day, and on that day, a deep darkness once again fell across the land. And when that darkness fell across the land, it fell particularly on a hill that was outside of Jerusalem, and that hill was called Golgotha. And on that hill, Jesus himself was divided, as it were, on the cross, and his blood was poured all over the ground. The gospel tells us is that Jesus, God in the flesh, the ultimate covenant keeper, came, he suffered, and died as if he was a covenant breaker. He took all the punishments that came from violating the covenant, and he did it so that we, who are covenant breakers, could be treated as if we were covenant keepers. He took the punishment that came with breaking the covenant so that you and I could experience the rewards as if we had kept the covenant perfectly. You see, friends, Abraham wasn't given the details of the promises of God in his life. He wasn't given the plan. He wasn't given the schedule. He wasn't given the timetable. But what he was given was a picture of Jesus Christ himself. He was given a glimpse, a small glimpse, into how God's great plan of redemption would be unfolded. How he would come and rescue the world from sin. How he would rescue covenant breakers like you and I from the punishment that we deserve. And so, friends, the gospel calls you to this same life of faith. It offers you gracious promises that we certainly do not deserve. 
But just know that it doesn't always give us all the plans and all the schedules and all the timetables. But what the gospel does give us is it gives us the charge to look to Christ. To glimpse at Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf to place our trust in a God who gave himself for you and for me. Let's pray.